Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership program that lies behind it. We spent the second and now the third series striving to find that extraordinary generative intersection between art and activism, politics and philosophy, science and spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for all of us, for the human and the more than human worlds. And my guest this week lives at that intersection. Adam Hamdi's first degree was in law from Oxford. His second was in philosophy from London. Now he's a screenwriter who works with teams on both sides of the Atlantic and a best-selling novelist. He's been a management consultant and, as he'll tell us, he's on the board of Lagendal, a company striving to find an actual science-based treatment and prophylaxis for the coronavirus. Adam is an all-round polymath, and he's also one of the best-informed and grounded people I know. When I'm not clear where the sense-making lies in the torrent of misinformation that we are fed by our political overseers, Adam is my go-to for common and uncommon sense. As you'll hear, he is one of those people who goes to find out what the data actually are and how we can implement them in a way that is best for us all. So, people of the podcast, please welcome Adam Hamdi. So, Adam Hamdi, one of the most extraordinary polymaths I have ever come across, and we will have listed in the intro all of the very many things that you do very, very well. But I do want to congratulate you on Black 13 being recommended amongst the novels, crime novels of the year by Barry Forshaw. I will put the link in the show notes because that there is no higher accolade. Barry is the king of crime reviewers. So very well done and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Amanda. Um, and I want to thank you for invited me to be part of this and what you're doing with accidental gods is absolutely fascinating bringing together a um, a, a wonderful collection of people to give you know insight and advice on how to improve life and and improve our journey through the world for so many people so this is really an honor to be part of it thank you we are equally honored to have you here so in our chat beforehand, we were discussing what is most alive for you in this moment. And you said that it was empowering people. And I thought that sounded an extraordinarily wonderful place to leap off from. So can you tell us what you mean by empowering people and how we might go about it? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's very clear that we're living through difficult and fearful times. Um, people are very worried and concerned about the way the world's heading for a variety of different reasons. And the most pressing of this is obviously the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but fear and um, worry, anxiety shrinks people's worlds. Um, mm. I believe that it's something I've said to my children for a very long time. You know, my, my daughter uh, used to be very anxious about going to friends' birthday parties. Mm. And I said, if you allow that anxiety to um, take hold, you will have a much smaller experience of life. You will stop going to parties. You will have fewer friends. You will stop having those experiences. And that's the nature of fear. It stops you. It prevents you from doing things that you might otherwise do, things that might enrich your life. Um, and it's something that I've seen throughout my life with people that I've worked with. Um, before I became a, a, an author, I was a management consultant and I've worked with um, chief executives of huge organizations. And they're um, people who are uh, ostensibly on the surface, very confident, um, very capable, but actually when you get to know them and when you understand their, their issues, they're gripped by fear. Um, mm. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we 
often struggle with in life is that we live the language of fear. Everything that we experience from, um, you know, when we're, when we're children growing up, you know, teachers, parents, people around us can reinforce this idea that we're not capable. We can't do things. We have failed. Mm. We have not yes. achieved what, uh, you know, whatever we've set out to do. And actually what we're not taught is that failure is part of the journey towards success. And you'll know as a creative that, failure is an essential part of what you do oh yes 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 as a novelist you know yeah. if you don't get stuck down many rabbit holes and crash and burn then you're not really finding your best work i think absolutely and i think you're completely right and um you you know as a as a creative part of the journey i think of becoming a, an effective creative is knowing that you're going to experience failure, that you're going to experience moments where everything seems to be going wrong. And mm. if I think one of the things that we can do um, as human beings is actually embrace failure and learn that it is just a step on the road to success. You know, when you have a disaster, it could be something as simple as making a cake. You know, you've learned mm. something from that that you can take out of it and improve the next time. I, I've obviously with lockdown got into home baking and I was having a, oh, have you, yeah. are you making sourdough? <laughs> uh, no, not sourdough. No, I'm making okay. bagels, um, you know, proper Italian pizza dough, uh, bread. Um, wow. and I was a bit hit and miss with the, um, proving process. And I spoke to a friend of mine who is an authentic French baker who does specialize in sourdoughs and baguettes. And, um, and he said to me, Oh, just touch the, um, the water that you're using to, uh, to mix with the yeast and um, if it feels slightly cold to you, you've got it at the right temperature. If it feels body temperature or warmer, it's going to kill the yeast. Oh, interesting. And, and, and so, you know, my, my failures actually helped me get to a point now where I can make a, a good bagel. Yes, that is impressive. <laughs> so, but so life, but life, you know, taking that from that very sort of uh, comical example, you know, that applies to everything that we do in life. And I think that we need to get out of this, um, habit of talking about people as having failed hmm. and we do it you know and it's particularly noticeable in the press they, they, they you know often the tabloids will relish over someone's failure and you know once someone's been labeled as a failure uh, you know life becomes very difficult for them uh, well unless you're prime minister when it doesn't seem to touch you at all but <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry I did say I wasn't going to be political. I, I failed already. We're five minutes in. <laughs> Could we take a step back? Because I know you've done a lot of research into neuroscience and human behavior, and you've got a book, a nonfiction book coming out looking at that. One of the things mm. that really interests me, because I believe that in indigenous cultures, when I was writing the Boudicca books, I really looked into indigenous cultures, and I came across a lot of old anthropological stuff, particularly with the First Peoples of the North Americas. And one particular paper where a priest was feeling very proud of himself because he had taught the natives to beat their children, which previously was anathema to them. Um, and, and you can just trace the whole kind of catastrophe of us moving away from being in context with the earth and moving away from a generative lifestyle where children were brought up believing that they were the best that they could be into a world where we were brought up believing that we were inherently broken and damaged and guaranteed to fail. And so I'm thinking that parents and teachers teach this to the kids because they believe it to be true, because it's what they were taught and we could go back many hundreds of generations before we find the break where that happened. But have you any insight is there any neurological benefit to teaching people that they are inherently failures? Because my feeling is people, humanity doesn't create behaviors that have no benefit. You know, that's not, I think, possibly an evolutionary useful thing to do. There must at some point have been a benefit to this internal belief. Have you found one? Um, I think the opposite is true. I think that when you try and beat people out of failure, you create more failure. Yes, of course. Yes, um, yes. I wasn't yeah, suggesting because, otherwise. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no. So I'm saying I think that, you know, all of these behaviors that we see parents and teachers and uh, the people who form us exhibiting um, are very harmful. And there are a number of reasons for this. The, the first is that, um, you know, when you look at neurological studies that have been done on fear and anxiety, it always yield suboptimal results in terms of decision making and we know that we don't need studies to tell us that we know that from personal experience if you're afraid you make bad decisions you can't think clearly you you know your anxiety kind of takes hold and so what you're doing by you know beating or chastising children or just trying to shout them out of failure Mm. is you're creating anxiety around failure they become fearful of failure and it's actually so common that you find people were not willing to take the risk because they are afraid that they're going to fail. Mm. It's absolutely, it's one of the biggest, (laughs) if you're working with executives in big businesses, it's one of their big um, worries is their fear of failure. And presumably this is what leads to the imposter syndrome that we hear so much about of people who've got to be extremely good at what they do, but still are afraid that it's at some point somebody is going to find out the secret, which is that they're not very good at it. Yeah. And, and but actually, there's no such thing as an imposter, because the higher up you go and the more um, sophisticated in terms of technical expertise people are, you realize that actually everyone's winging it to a certain extent. You're just pushing the boundaries more if you know more about your subject. So you're always going to feel for the edges of your life. So I, I've worked with, um, you know, very, very, very cutting edge scientists who probably know more about um, virology and immunology than, you know, many leading um, uh, experts. But they still suffer from, you know, similar inadequacies and similar fear of failure. Um, And the other one, obviously, is the fear of success. Mm. And so, you know, for, for the for the simple reason that you're going to make people anxious around failure and therefore make them more likely to fail and also less likely to take risk. That's not a good way to raise children. But the other issue is, you know, if you try and discourage people from failure, you end up with a society where you get very little growth Hmm. because We grow through taking risks. We grow through trying new things. We grow through experimentation, you know, and this is personal growth and growth in society and in business. So you don't grow by not taking any risks. And what you're encouraging people to do, you can't you can't say to someone, don't fail. You can't beat someone into not failing. You have to teach them what they can learn from that failure and what they can take from that and how they can do something different to improve or get a better result next time that's you know that's what we should be encouraging that's how i think how we will nurture um children and uh you know and and adults into delivering um the best for themselves and for society Mm. and also i have to say uh, the animals that we work with i spend a lot of time training dogs and horses and we have discovered in agility competition where the difference between getting a gold and getting nothing can be hundreds of a second, that if you don't train with positive reinforcement, you are not going to get anywhere close because the dogs need to feel that they are free from consequences of failure, that it's okay to experiment, that it's okay to go completely all out for everything because it's going, you, know, you will not be told that you did it wrong. Um, And what we're discovering with horses is that if you can produce that same mindset, you have a very, very different way of relating. Anyway, most that's that's off on a different track. No, I mean, that's that's fascinating to 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 learn. And I think that, you know, you don't need I, I believe that you don't actually need to reinforce the fact that someone has failed. You feel it within yourself. And and actually that kind of darkness that people feel that sense of um of failure that people feel is a motivator if left alone people will try and improve on their own um, performance but if you reinforce that failure if you um, tell them they must not fail you're creating all the conditions for them not to try again yeah and i think also i know from my own writing that if i were to label something as failure just the fact that i had labeled it that would be crushing i don't know about you but writing always feels to me as if you're you're walking along a high wire over the Niagara Falls juggling flaming chainsaws and it's it's quite terrifying enough without me hammering myself for failure so i have to label the 6 weeks going down a rabbit hole that really wasn't ideal as experimentation and right. as 
exploring other avenues. And then I come back and go, well, that was exciting and interesting and fascinating. And it's taught me I've got this new bit of exciting because you always generate something in the not in it not being where the book needs to go. There's a there's a reason why it wasn't. And the reason then opens doors to where the book does need to go. And in the labeling it as something that feels to me generative rather than something that feels to me destructive, then I have the inner capacity to do that again. Because every time, uh, this may just be me and my stuff, but writing a book feels like climbing Everest. And if I felt that I had just fallen down a crevasse, I might just decide to give up and go and stock shelves in Sainsbury's, which would both pay better and be less stressful. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I think the labeling of it is quite important too. So are you finding with your children or with the adults that you work with that we can learn to not be hemmed in by fear? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'd sit on the advisory board of a genetic medicine uh, company uh, called Ligandel at the moment, and I'm um, working a lot with the chief executive there. And I think, uh, you know, I've worked with chief executives, you know, a lot in the past, um, and people through, throughout different organizations. And actually, the message that I have for people is to be kind to themselves. Um, you know, you're, you're, we, we're taught growing up that the world is a certain way and that you have to conform and fit in with the system and that you need to get the house and the car and the two kids and the wife and the, you know, and this is what your life should look like. Yeah. But actually there is no, if you're just thinking about the world in its free form native state, there is none of this. There is none of this. We've made this, we've yes. created the systems and we've created the order based on actually some kind of heritage that's been handed down, you know, through the generations that we may or may not like many components of. Um, and so once you accept that there are no rules and that life is a journey, I think it, it changes your perspective and it comes very much back to what you were saying about, you know, your perspective in your work and climbing the mountain um, that, you know, that what you perceive as a failure, as a setback is actually just another step on the journey. Hmm. And so the one thing that I talk to when I, you know, talk to my own children, when I talk to people that I work with, I just say, be kind to yourself, actually, don't be so hard on yourself. And that applies across every area of life. We, um, you know, we can be quick to judge others, but we're even quicker to judge ourselves. Yes. And we just, we're so, quite often people will be so hard on themselves and not cut themselves any slack. And they, they focus on all the negatives. And, and again, you'll probably know as an author that you could have, you know, a hundred really great reviews, but the one that sticks in your mind. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the one where you think, oh God, they got it. Everybody yeah. else who writes good stuff, you think, well, I'm not sure you actually read it properly. But that's very kind of you. And then somebody goes, this is the biggest heap of shit the world's ever seen. And you go, oh, God, you saw it. You're right. And I'll never write again. Um, yeah, I, I think right. I have a very fragile ego. <laughs> but right. No, you don't. You have a very normal ego. Yeah. We, we, we tend to discount the positive and focus on the negative. And that's true in... In life as a whole, not just for creatives, you will be really hard on yourself for what you perceive as your failings. But what's interesting is that people will often manifest that in behaviors towards others. Yes. So you'll be at your most tetchy and aggressive and hostile when you feel that you failed the most. Yes, because you're projecting, yes, you have to project it out because right. otherwise the internal structures that I've created will crumble. What I'm right. finding with Accidental Gods, because we're spending quite a lot of time, I did a 10-hour workshop three weeks ago. Working on exactly this, we helped, invited people to look at what is your default feeling. So in the quiet moments or when you start work or when you're just mulling stuff over, what is the feeling underlying that? And and for almost everybody, it's, it's one of self-judgment, responsibility, fear, all of the things that come around life being hard. And then, so what, if you were in able to choose, what would you choose? And then how can we change that default so that your default feeling is something else? And in order to teach that, I've had to practice it. And I started at the beginning of lockdown. So we're talking, what, 18 weeks now? And I am finding it, it's 
extraordinary and it's a very interesting path to walk on. But changing that default is a daily work and I enjoy the work. I now really look forward to meditating and I'm in that sort of faith, I'm going to go and meditate now, it's great, rather than, hmm, meditation is something that I do because I really think that I should. But it's taking, I, I was not expecting it to take as long or for the layers and layers of my own ability to go yes but to be so many. Do you find this with other people or have you got a technique for changing that default feeling to something generative overnight? And please, if you have, would you share it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so um, there are lots of different pathways to get to this point and some of it is quite um, scientific, some of it's quite philosophical, some of it's quite spiritual, but actually your end result is that you want to um, do exactly what you said, change your default setting, if you like. Um, and the thing that works for me actually is just net nothingness, emptiness. It's, 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 I don't wake up with a particular feeling any, any, any day. I don't wake up depressed. I don't wake up, you know, happy. I don't wake up. I just wake up content, if you like. It's that feeling of, um, of emptiness. Well, contentment isn't empty, really, is it? Contentment is well, a is a generative sense. I yeah, suspect. I I would say the contentment would evolve and come through the day. I, I wake up with with really with nothing, and I think one of the ways that um, that's happened to me personally is through a lot of adversity. Actually, I've I've gone the painful route. So <laughs> um, rather than actively seeking out uh, spiritual understanding or scientific understanding, I've kind of uh, lived through a lot of different struggles and figured out through trial and error that actually most things you, you encounter in life you can get through. Um, most problems that you are confronted with you can resolve, um, and that. Uh, you know, it's not really worth being too judgmental of, of yourself or others. Mm. Um, and that it's not worth worrying about the things that you can't control and the things you can control, you can fix. Um, and so it's been a, a difficult journey to get to this point, but I'm glad that it happened because it's enabled me to kind of you know, deal with quite stressful situations that other people find, um, you know, stressful and challenging, but just look at them quite calmly and say, oh, actually, this is what we need to do to to resolve it. And um, it's a useful um, state of mind to be in. But in terms of other people um, reaching that state sort of consciously, uh, I wouldn't recommend the painful route. That's not a. <laughs> One of my early teachers said, "We will learn to we will learn through pain until we learn how to learn through love." And yeah. if you choose to learn through pain, then know that it's a choice. Um, so yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't advise uh, learning through pain. So I think the um, you know there are meditative techniques that uh, people can engage with, and it's a it, you know it's kind of about giving your time yourself time to. Um, reflect and to understand and to grow but there are also scientific you know techniques that people can read up on a, uh, you know to understand how their um, uh, minds function and to understand themselves better and different people respond to different techniques so some people will want that sort of spiritual growth and other people um, like to be ground their development in fact and, and knowledge and understanding so I had an instance recently where I was talking to a friend who has fallen for a girl who's not in, interested in him um, you know or certainly is, right so is is um is certainly expressing uh, that she's not interested i don't know whether she really is interested or not and but i then took him through the uh, the neurological neuroscientific um, manifestations of attraction and why it's happening and how it's um affecting his brain and um can you do that uh, for us, Adam? Because because this podcast really enjoys neuroscience geekery. So give us some. Oh, geekery. okay. That would be really good. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so when you meet someone for the first time, your brain does a really quick calculation, um, and it uses the olfactory receptors um, to assess the pheromones given off. And I always thought pheromones were something that people, you know, tried to manufacture to attract, uh, you know, the opposite sex, but. 
um, you know, as in they were sold, it sold in bottles by uh, snake oil salesmen <laughs> on a, no, but no, actually no, it's, a, yeah, no, it's a real thing. Yeah, no, horses, it is. It's a real have thing. Them, so they're yeah. not buying stuff. Yeah. But, but they, yeah, they're not, uh, yeah, they're not, uh, they're not for swindlers. It's a real thing. So what, what happens is, um, your, um, uh, your, your brain makes a quick calculation and it seems to look for the optimal immunological benefit that will be conferred by your reproduction. Um, and by optimal, your um, your immune profile can't be too far away or too close to your parents hmm. um, in your in your in your partner in your potential partner, and um, it makes this quick, quick calculation. And you're also using your visual um, you know senses to your brain is also assessing visually whether this person is a, an optimal mate. And at the point when it decides, and it's all happening really quickly, at the point when it decides. Um, uh, that this is a, an optimal mate. Your brain is flooded with um, uh, hormones and chemicals, and your frontal cortex is shut down, and you lose the ability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoops. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, of research into the science of love, and it's absolutely fascinating. And what happens is you lose the ability to um, critically reason around this particular individual, and it's specific. It's time specific, and um, specific to this person. So you'll have judgment about everything else in your life, but around this one person, your brain literally shuts down your, 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 your sort of critical reasoning and your logical functions, which is why you can have so many people saying, well, I don't understand what she sees in him or he right. sees in her or she sees in her. You can, you know, you, you can have people who are completely blinded to the flaws. And if you think about it, there's an evolutionary reason for that. If you can see the flaws in someone, you are less likely to mate. Right. And this person has been judged optimal by the parts of you that are good at judging those things. Right. So it exactly. matters that so, your head isn't going, no, 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 he doesn't have a right. good enough job. Exactly. So you're, 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 you're um, so then you wake up in, uh, you know, six months time when yes. all of those uh, things have worn away yes. and you go, ah, how did I, end? Yes, <laughs> what, yes, oh what, what did I see in that yes, person? And now how do but, I extract myself from this? But, but so what's, so what's, how long does it last, this frontal cortex shutdown, just for those who are in this state and want to? Um, I mean, there's some there's some debate uh, about this. There's a um, th there's a uh, a theory that we go through an attraction stage, which is this stage, and then there's an attachment stage where you get a different release of mm. um, hormones that sort of build towards long term empathy so more and serotonin and less oxytocin. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, and um, uh, and then so there's there's some debate over how long this attraction phase lasts, but right. it's month, months to to a year. That but, sort but of. But it also uh, must be there's a, there's everybody knows that there's the totally attracted get together, wake up in the morning and think, oh my god, and leave. So there must also be, okay, we mated, and now we don't need to know each other anymore. I kind of if you don't get to the through the attraction to the attachment, you go straight from attraction to revulsion. Yeah, <laughs> because you know, as far as the presumably the biology is concerned, you've done your you've job. Done what yeah. you need to do. So yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think I think there's um, uh, there's probably some mathematics in there as well, like optimization, <laughs> number of times, and uh, you know, cycles and all that sort of thing, which I don't really want to get into. But but the interesting thing about it is that um, that mothers experience the same thing with their um, with their babies. So right. the they, the frontal that, shutdown. The frontal shutdown yeah. is something. So it's again, it's baby specific. Yeah. So um, you know that idea of everyone having the most beautiful baby in the world is very true because to everyone they do. And so many of my friends who just are bewailing the fact that they feel they gave birth to their brain and now they can't think for the first however many months is presumably because the frontal shutdown has happened. Partly, and also <laughs> really interested to know if this happens. So in tribal societies, again, with Boudicca, I was looking at this, where there is no sense of ownership by fathers. So mating happens, the children are born, the tribe rears them, and it doesn't matter who they were sired by. I wonder, and therefore the attachment phase is attachment within a tribe. You don't end up with this bizarre one-on-one, -on -one, you know, domesticity that the Romans, Romans brought in, the kind of monogamy and 2.5 kids and a golden retriever. 
not that the golden retriever was Roman, obviously. Um, <laughs> it, it's a whole different dynamic. And I, I can feel studies arising in my head that probably will never get done because there aren't enough really indigenous tribes surviving in ways that, that we would need to be able to work with. I wonder why it changed. Because monogamy is is crazy on almost every level, except when you have ownership of land that needs to pass down some kind of patrilineal descent line, which was part of our removing ourselves from context with the earth. I'm not expecting you to answer this. I'm just thinking out loud that the neuroscience must have changed at some point. I, I'm, um, I mean, you, st you do see attachment forming uh, in the brain in um, fathers. I mean, that is mm. something that you can measure. You can see the um you know an increase in in activity in the empathy centers you yeah and can, increases in oxytocin you know, sure. oxytocin yeah you can see all of that so um but i think you're absolutely right if i was this is complete speculation but i think it's it's to do with property you know the the idea of the importance of setting yourself apart from the community that the child is property because it's going to own your property and pass to you mm. uh, you know that rather it's going to your property is going to pass to them um I think that's the point at which we awesome. lost this com community yes. sense. Although yeah. Mickey Kashtan, um, the nonviolent communicator I, I spoke to a few weeks ago, and I think off air said that when men are in the presence of, of young children, their testosterone drops, their oxytocin and progesterone, I think, rises. And in a tribal setting, they would always be within there would always be young children. And so that yeah. that hormonal effect would be happening perpetually, whether they were specifically biologically your children or not as that adult male whose job is guardianship you would have guardianship of the whole tribe and of all the young people so therefore that would then be integrated in that and at some point exactly as you say we've shifted that more towards uh this is my child and therefore i can it can inherit what i own well i mean i i think that's really interesting and i think it comes down to uh you know where we where we set responsibility in society and what are yeah. we responsible for? And that's something that I've been thinking about recently, um, particularly with regards to the, um, you know, with the pandemic, hmm. um, you know, and how far can we go to help make things better? Um, I, I don't know what your, your, you know, what your thoughts are in, in terms of, you know, what is our obligation as people to help during this quite challenging time? Say a little bit more about that, because this is something that, Mickey and I talked about and I've thought about a lot in the intervening month. So can you phrase that question differently? Because I'm not sure what context we're in. Well, I mean, you know, I think that right now people are feeling quite scared and you know, fearful, as we talked about before. And, um, you know, often I'm hearing people express helplessness. You know, what yes. can I do? How can I make this situation better okay so how how far can we all go to help each other feel agency yeah agency how what what can we do to to help um you know improve this situation that we all find ourselves in yeah yes which is actually the whole basis of accidental gods is giving people agency and of humanity rising are you familiar with that did we talk about mm. that yeah we did yeah um, because it seems to me that part of if it is the case that the old structure is crumbling around us, which it certainly feels to me that it is, that there's ever more frantic kind of clinging on by those whose imaginations have been hampered. I spoke early on to um, Rob Hopkins, who was founder of the Transition Town Movement, and then has written an amazing book called From What Is to What If. And we recorded an entire podcast and the sound didn't work, so it never went out. But oh. um, as part of it, he was saying that the public school system is a disimagination machine. It's designed exactly to make people feel as if they have to fend off an inner inadequacy. And we can see that in those who are, I would suggest, currently running the country and in you know the, the greater mass of those who are propping up what we might loosely call neoliberal capitalism. Trump apparently said this morning he was going to shut down TikTok in America. Um, and it's that sort of whatever you have to do to hold on to the structure that exists because it is impossible internally to imagine that structure not existing and a very fearful thing. So part of what 
those of us who feel the world would be better without that structure need to do is to help it not be frightening. That it help people to be able to imagine how the world might be without that structure. And part of doing that, it seems to me, is that we create a sense of agency and create the vision of exactly how a world could be differently. Because we exist at the moment where it is genuinely and literally easier to imagine near-term human extinction than it is to imagine a world without the current structure. And that doesn't seem to me either necessary or useful. And so for me, the first thing is giving people the capacity to imagine how it would feel if the world were different. Because my my understanding of neuroscience is if we can build a felt template, the, the non-fear template, the template of a world that is generative and that feels good, whatever good is for the individual, then we can build the structures that get us to that. And I think Humanity Rising and a number of other endeavours around that are really working very hard to create imaginal structures of how the world could be to give people the agency to go there. Does that answer the question that you asked? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean to be asking you questions well, on no, your podcast. This, yeah. this whole podcast is a conversation. It's it's this is yeah, no. helping people. This is the point of the podcast is to create yeah. those imaginal spaces. So yeah, let's no, reform that. Yeah, no, I think that's. Um, I think it's really important. I think one of the things that struck me. I mean, I. Uh, used to consult in the medical industry. My wife's been writing about pandemics for 15 years. Um, I saw what was happening and it was my imagination that allowed me to project forward and see what that meant. Um, And uh, early in, it was the middle of February, I got asked by a former cabinet minister to write a report for Matt Hancock on what what I thought this pandemic was going to, well, first of all, did I think there was going to be a pandemic and what I thought it would involve. Right. Um, and that was sent to him, uh, that was sent to Hancock on the 2nd of March. And, um, and I had sent it to a number of scientists around the world for review before I sent it to the, to my um, cabinet minister contact. And, um, uh, so I sent it to Professor Sir David King, who's obviously now um, running Independent Sage, yeah. and he wrote back and said, "This is a fabulous piece of work. It needs to be published in a national newspaper and discussed widely." And because what I'd um, done was I'd said, "You know, there's a pandemic coming. This is a serious virus, and um, we need to lock down pre- preventatively as a precaution for four weeks. Tool up a test and trace system." Um, put testing in at airports, quarantine everything, uh, and then reopen. Once we have all the controls in place that we need to make sure that we can track the virus, um, we can reopen more or less as normal, which is essentially what New Zealand did. Um, Some of the scientists that I sent it to, um, and I'm not going to name any names because it was, you know, it's quite embarrassing what they said. Um, one in particular wrote back to me and said, I wholeheartedly disagree with you. This is um, no more serious than flu. Um, what you're proposing. Yeah. What you're proposing would involve the shutdown of the 50% of the economy for four weeks. It would cause terrible damage. Um, This This is a scientist, not an economist. This was was an extremely prominent medical scientist. I do. Yes, who um, has since put his name to a letter saying that everything should be shut down until the virus is eradicated. Oh, no. Yes. So I actually emailed him um, and, uh, you know, I didn't rub it in, but I said, (laughs) what has has caused you to change your position? Um, <laughs> it's called in this house. It's called doing the schnar dance, and the schnar dance is quite quite fun, actually. Uh, um, but but so so but what struck me was that I was seeing what was going to unfold, and pretty much, and you could you can read a summary of the research. It's um, available uh, for uh, for my sins on free market conservatives because yes. one of Wasn't one of my conservative um, home. No, it's free market conservatives. Okay, we'll put the link in the show notes if you can send it. One of my friends is editor of the site, and uh, I wanted to reach the people who influence decision-making in the government. It doesn't reflect my politics, but it was uh, 
it was, you know, it seemed to me a good place to try and influence uh, decision makers. And but what happened was I got abuse from um, people around the Conservative Party. And, uh, you know, my recommendations were obviously ignored. And um, and it was all because people couldn't imagine. They couldn't yeah. put themselves slightly into the future and picture what might be and how one could make changes now to prevent that or to make things better. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the old structures are failing and we're seeing them laid bare. We can see the failures and we're counting them in, in unfortunately, in mortality. Yes. Um, and uh, what concerns me is that all the emphasis from those in power is to get things back the way they were. Yep. Yes. Because I think partly they, there's a tendency, I speak as someone quite a long way along the Asperger scale, which I think I share probably with certain of those in power, particularly Cummings. Um, and there's a tendency to, one has imagination and one has planned out one's actions for the next, you know, several months, looking, sort of playing the internal multidimensional chess and seeing the moves that we're going to make. And it takes quite a lot of internal flexibility to let go of that. And I think what I imagine in the people currently in power is that they had their grids all laid out. They had everything planned. They had the things that were their priorities. And it's proved extremely difficult for them to come off that track and go into something that's more unknown, therefore more, more challenging, and that requires different levels of thinking. Does that fit with what you understand? I, I, I think it's you're absolutely right. I think, and I, it's something that I struggle with because I'm very adaptive. I can see when a change needs to be made and, um, and pivot. A pivot, you, yeah. because that that's. And I, I think coming back to your public school thing, I went to a very um, uh, below average state school, um, and I think growing up. Uh, we, you know, we didn't have much when I was growing up as a family. I think it teaches you that you have to work hard and you have to be adaptive. You have to be ingenious. You mm. have to try and find opportunity. And when you find it, you have to try and seize it. Yeah. And that's not something that you're taught at public school, particularly mm. if you come from the backgrounds that a lot of these people have come from, which is one of privilege and wealth. Where and you, entitlement. Entitlement. Yeah. And so it doesn't teach you to be um, creative necessarily in your thinking. It teaches you how to sustain systems, how to, you might try and optimize systems, but you're not trying to radically change them. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it, 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 and even now you're seeing it, you know, what, two weeks ago, the prime minister was talking about everything back to normal by Christmas. And then yesterday, Yes. He's talking about the fact that this is going to be here for a long time and now sacrifices. And, and, and it's all Europe's fault. The second wave is coming from yeah. Europe, <laughs> which is just <laughs> the, the the narratives around this are oh. The only good oh. thing is that, that I, I don't actually know anybody who believes it anymore. No. Um, but no, it's interesting. No. Although I did also read this morning that James Murdoch has um, left Fox News, the entire empire, because of differences in the narrative. And as I understand it, of all the Murdoch science, he's the one who gets climate change. And if he were to set up a competing news network, that might be very interesting. So I'd really interested in the neuroscience. And I know that you worked with um, a radiologist or a neuroscientist who's who's looked at neuroplasticity. And I would really like to talk about that because it seems to me that I'm aware, even as we're speaking, that I get back into my tribal judgmentalism and having spent all of last week talking to the lovely Benjamin Ross about how not to be tribal, I'm I'm still not getting it. But there must be ways whereby we can maximize the way the ways of increasing our neuroplasticity, of enhancing our ability to change, and of imagining generative futures. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, one of the myths that, uh, you know, certainly I was guilty of uh, believing is that your brain stops developing when you sort of hit your 30s, early 40s. Um, and that's most definitely not the case. Um, 
your brain continues, uh, your hippocampus continues to manufacture um, uh, neurons until the day you die. The rate of um, production decreases as you age, but it, you know you're continually making new cells. Um, there's also a, um, an increase in the rate of uh, neural death if those cells aren't used for um, functional purposes within 72 hours of their creation. Uh -huh. So you have to keep using your brain. Yeah, you have to keep using your brain. It's like a muscle. You have to keep using it, and that will increase the rate of um, manufacture, and that will, and, and the more you use it, the more you'll keep of the of the neurons that are manufactured. So yes, your rate of new, new neuron production declines; it slows as you age. But as long as you keep using your brain, um, you will be able to form new cells. Uh, your brain shrinks; it starts shrinking in mass, um, uh, roughly at a rate of about one percent per year from the age of forty. So your brain is actually getting smaller, um, but that doesn't necessarily impede performance, provided you keep using it. And whenever they've, uh, so I, I got, I was um, lucky enough to spend uh, a week out at the Weissman Institute in Tel Aviv three years ago, and you know some of the stuff they're doing there, studying uh, neuroscience and longevity, is absolutely fascinating. Hmm. And um, they found a direct link between uh, uh, between two things social interaction and brain activity so how much you're using your brain and the type of activity you're using it for hmm. and longevity you will live longer if you are part of a community and you are using your brain for um challenging cognitive function right so um, that what defines challenging co cognitive function so what seems to what seems to create the most uh, benefit in terms of Increasing neuroplasticity and increasing neuron production is um, spatial challenges, spatial problems. Um, so there have been studies done comparing, say, crosswords with Sudoku, and Sudoku mm. outperforms crosswords in terms of stimulating activity. Huh. The other thing that's really interesting is um, a good friend of mine is um, professor of cognitive neuroscience at Oxford, um, Dr. Mark Woolrich, and um, he's he's done studies looking at the benefits of exercise for improvement in cognitive function in um, people who haven't got any neurological conditions and people who have. And um, exercise seems to be a uh, benefit across the board. But what's interesting is it doesn't matter what kind of exercise. Uh, mm. And it can be walking, it can be running. And, and his theory, and this hasn't been tested, his theory is that it's actually not so much the exercise, which does improve blood flow and um, oxygenation and everything it's but balance, it's is it well no it, he actually thinks it's it's <laughs> it's nature he right. thinks that it's yeah. being outdoors and the outdoor stimulus of seeing so many things your brain right. taking in so much data um which brings me on to the thing that i think you know yes. we talked about um you know off 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 elf air was some phytoncides yes, please yes so uh, you know, we're kind of riffing now, which is uh, moving from, you know, neural That's production, good. neuroplasticity um, to uh, immune system enhancement. Um, so there are these um, chemicals given off by trees called phytoncides. Um, and there have been numerous studies. I mean, it started really, I think, in Japan. Yeah, um, the forest with, bathing. Yeah, with the forest bathing. And, and there have been numerous studies showing an improved immune response from exposure to phytoncides. So both in nature, but also, um, you know, I mentioned the study where um, they had taken the chemicals from the tree and just put it into a hotel room and saw if that gave any improvement, and it did. Um, then there's the um, study. These are the chemicals given off by the trees. They're given off by trees. They're given off by trees, and they're, they're proven to give an in, immune enhancement to human beings. Hmm. Um, so, you know, those two things taken together, um, you know, the idea that exercise in nature is beneficial to your brain hmm. and being exposed to the chemicals given off by trees is beneficial to your immune system kind of point to the fact that we were evolved to benefit from <laughs> <laughs> being in our environment. Us. Right, exactly, yes. being in our natural environment. So if I was, you know, we we're talking about how to institute change and how to 
implement beneficial change. One of the things that I think we need to do is, you know, this, the old system, the system that's in charge at the moment is very resistant to change. It'll do everything it can. We're seeing it, as I said, with the pandemic. It would rather yeah. people died yeah. so we can go to the shops. Yes. So that an economic system that doesn't work anyway can be perpetuated. Right. Because we so, don't have a model for an alternative economic system that might give them a sense of a get out of jail free card. Right. But but what we can do is we can use that economic system, we can use that um, political system, we can use that um, social system to further a different agenda. And so we were talking about why, how can we affect change? How can we um, encourage people into new ways of thinking and new ways of doing? And um, one of the ways is self-interest. Hmm. And so if you want more trees because it's going to benefit the planet, the easiest way to convince people to plant more trees is to convince them that it's going to benefit themselves, which it does. Yes. And so, but but it's difficult in an economic system that is predicated on the idea that everyone has to make money at every step of the way yeah. to get airtime for something as simple as being around trees improves your cognitive performance and, um, and we can talk about this as well, it improves your longevity, it improves your immune system, your immune response, and it improves your mental health as well. So there are right. a multitude of studies that show that exposure to um, uh, nature is beneficial in terms of fighting depression. Um, uh, you know, there have been, I think it's the same Japanese team that did studies about hospital recovery and people who had, could see trees from their hospital rooms recovered quicker oh than my people goodness. who couldn't. Yeah. So, and therefore, we need to look at the airflows and see: was it the phytoncides, or was it simply being able to was see it trees? Simply being able to see them, right? Yes. And so then do the other blind then, people also who are in rooms that have access to trees wow, recover. This is. Uh, speed. I love the scientist mind immediately figuring out what <laughs> controls you need, and <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, um, but the the you know then there was the other study we talked about, which was the um, Harvard School of uh, Public Health, which looked at the. Uh, you know, they surveyed 100,000 women across America and found that incidents of depression, heart disease, um, anxiety were all lower in people who lived um, near or in green areas. So it's quite significant, yes. but there's no money to be made from it. So, you know, yes. we have to get the message out in other ways. And um, and once people are kind of cotton on to the fact that it is in their interests to have more nature around them, yeah. um, we might just have a hope of, you know, Stopping, <laughs> stopping them building HS two, which is taking down ancient woodland, for instance. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any chance of stopping that now. But really? Yes, you're right. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, That's so a whole I, separate I, rabbit hole. Let's not go yeah, there because no, quite a lot of listeners are not in the UK and won't even know what that is. Know what it's, it is? Yeah, it's something that needs to stop. So we're we're heading heading towards the R, and there's so much stuff that I would really like to still look at but it seems this is where we've been heading so we convince people that it's in their personal interest to plant trees and it's in their personal interest to have strong and powerful social systems and it seems to me that one of the things that lockdown taught us was a renewed sense of community and i in this kind of strange not quite post lockdown period that we're in now it seems to me that the community spirit sense is still there up to a point. I think one of the reasons I think that the world governments who were so desperate to get back to before lockdown is that they didn't want there to be a new normal, that there is probably enough neuroscience done of how long a state obtains before it becomes the normal. And they didn't want the new normal to be a sense of community spirit and a sense of people actually doing with their days something that felt generative rather than pointless and that consumerism needed to kick off again. If we were able to construct a world in which economic growth were not the only indicator of success and social structure, social benefit and generative ways of living were the norm, then it seems to me that would be a step on the way to mitigating the chaos of climate change. 
with your contacts, because you clearly have some extraordinary good contacts in the system as it exists, are you seeing any signs at all that the powers that be are looking towards this or are they all moving back towards what was? <laughs> I'm laughing because I wish. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, so can you write another paper for free market <laughs> conservatives um, that would change them? Because I can't believe, you know, these are decent people. I, much as I loathe some of them, I'm, they're not there deliberately being evil, I don't think. They are doing what they believe is right. How do we help them to see that there are other ways? I think, well, I mean, uh, the, part of it is is this lack of imagination that we've already talked about. Part of it is not being able to picture what an alternative looks like. Mm. Um, the system always has been like this and it always will be. It's kind of the way that they perceive it, even though the system has never always been the way it well, is it's always been changing. You know, we've we've evolved through many different systems, um, and actually, I think it's it's almost easier to change things than it is to try and teach people how things can be changed. If that makes sense, I think it's better right. to lead by example um, yes. and to change things than it is to try and convince people because you're fighting against so much. Um, and it's all, it's, it's, you know, there's fear. What is this alternative yep. going to look like? What does it mean for me? There's the lack of imagination, which is kind of tied to the fear. I can't picture this. I can't see how mm. I fit into it. Um, and there's also comfort, there's comfort and ease, you know, why should yes. I change things? It's working for me, yes. but it's not working for billions of other people, but it's working for me. So, yes. you know, that I had hoped you know, when you encounter something as as um, profound as this pandemic, I'd hoped that it would be an inflection point, a point for reflection, you know, that there would be profound change. And what's interesting is when you talk to people individually, a lot of people are saying, uh, I am going to make a conscious effort not to go back to the way things were. I was spending a lot of time and energy achieving nothing. Mm. I was stressing about things that weren't important. I was worrying about things that didn't matter. I wasn't devoting enough time to the things that, that do matter. Um, I had my life out of balance. And it's a common conversation that I'm having across the board mm. because people have had time to pause and to reflect. I'm not seeing any evidence of that reflection in the corridors of power, if you like. But I believe that we're going to be forced there anyway. Because the simple fact of the matter is, in America, they're talking about 40 million people being evicted over this the, the course of this year. Yes. Right? Yes. You're, you're talking about mass unemployment. You've seen a 33% fall in GDP. Yes. There's yes. When the Great Depression be... was 11. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's so, three so, times as bad as the Great Depression. Right. So you're going to have a situation where you either... Um, well, there is no either. The system as it exists cannot continue with that kind of level of hardship mm. because that um, loss will percolate up and it will touch the people at the very top, whether they like it or not. Because even someone like Jeff Bezos, people are not going to have money to spend at Amazon. They're not going to have money. If you just let this ripple through... You I think are, when you're a trillionaire, that, that might cease to matter. <laughs> but, it, but it does. But it does, because yeah. what happens then? You get social disorder, you get crime, yes. you know, eventually it touches yes. people yes. everywhere, it you does. know, through. Yes. So ultimately, I think we're going to be forced into um, examining what our system looks like. You may end up in a situation where it is essential to have a universal basic income, something that I know a lot of people have been lobbying for, for a while. But actually, it, it comes about because of a crisis. Um, yes. You know, we've already seen a massive reduction in greenhouse gases because of a fall in air travel, of, of, of mm. transportation use, of, um, you know, all of the cruise ships and all of the things that have stopped now. Yeah. And we're actually going to be able to measure what this does to um, – to the environment we've already seen you know um that the oceans are cleaner and you know very visible uh, illustrations of the impact that we've been having on the planet and so we're being given an opportunity to now i think to re-engineer things well, we're also being forced into it so i actually am in a way uh you know this is going to be a very difficult time in human history 
But I'm optimistic about where this is going to take us. And I'm also optimistic that despite the resistance that we're going to face, change will be forced upon us. Uh, and so the things that people have been resisting in terms of the structural changes to society, I think they're going to be forced to accept. Okay. It's such a shame we got to the hour. I would love to talk to you about UBI. It's one of my, I, I really would have loved to go down that rabbit hole. I don't think we have time. I think that might be podcast number two. <laughs> um, because it seems to me that when things begin to crumble, the ideas that are picked up are the ideas that are lying around. And UBI is definitely one of those. UBS, Universal Basic Services, is another. Each of these still is predicated on the economic system as it stands. I think I think what I would like to see is that we have some very much more imaginative economic proposals worked out in a way that those who can make them happen can get their heads around them, which which is quite a big ask, but we can look at that in the next podcast. As a closing thing, if we are heading here, if the old structure is crumbling, if it is the case that people individually do not want to go back to how the way things were, what can people listening do in their own lives, do you think, to help move us towards a generative future? What can we leave people with a kind of action points to do? Uh, okay. Well, I think action points to do. The first thing is it is in all of our interests to spend um, time in and around nature. Yay. It's a really simple thing to do, right? Really simple. It doesn't cost you anything and it's really easy to do. It's going to improve your mental health, your um, cognitive performance, your uh, physical health, um, but it's also going to give you time to reflect. If you go for a walk, uh, you know, it's not formal meditation, but it will give you time to reflect. And often I have my best ideas when I'm out either for a run or for a walk. Mm. And so giving yourself that space and time, uh, whether it is through meditation or whether it's through exercise, whether it's through, you know, going for a walk, or whatever, to reflect is absolutely cr crucial because that's where you get imagination. That's where you get rid of the fear and you get imagination from. And then the other thing that I think is connecting with people who are um, trying to make a difference, trying to bring about change. So um, reaching out to networks like yours. Um, and, you know, there are many of these uh, yeah. communities springing up that are focused on trying to improve things. Um, so, you know, reach out to those um, and then look at where you can make small practical differences in your own life and where you can help others. So um, it might be something as simple as you know, planting a tree. It might be something much more complicated, like, uh, you know, developing a genetically engineered cure to coronavirus. <laughs> As Adam is doing. Which we're, well, yes. I'm helping those who are doing okay. it. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, so, you know, th there's, there's a whole spectrum of activities that people can, can engage in. But I think it all starts with that moment of time and reflection. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's a very, very good place to end. So people listening, moments of time and connection, get out into the natural world. And from an accidental God's point of view, certainly from my point of view, that's also the time where you can open your heart space and listen to the rest of the more than human world, because I think there's quite a lot of answers to be had there. Um, but that's that's my spring box, not yours. So Adam Hamdi, thank you so very much for the depth and the extraordinary breadth of your wisdom. And we've covered so many things on this podcast and there's so much still to do. So I'd really like to hope that we can come back for a second time at some point, perhaps later in wherever this coronavirus goes, uh, by which time you might have launched a cure which would be very interesting. So thank you. That's it for episode one with Adam Hamdi. Thank you very much for having me, Amanda. It's been a really lovely experience. So that's it for another week. With enormous thanks to Adam for the breadth and the depth and the perspicacity of his insight into so many things. I genuinely hope we can do another, possibly even more neurogeeky interview with Adam at a future date. In the meantime, I will put links in the show notes to his website, 
to the paper on the Conservative Free Market site. That is the first, possibly the last time I have ever read that particular blog, but his paper is really well worth reading. I will link to his books. I will link to the review from Peter Forshaw and to Lagandal, the company of which he is on the board. We will be back next week with another conversation exploring different futures that we can choose to make if we set our intent in their direction. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the sound production and for the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to come and visit us, our address is accidentalgods.life. You can email us from there if you want to give us comments about the podcast, if you want to suggest future people for us to interview, or if you want to find the show notes, or other podcasts, or the visualizations and meditations that are in the resources section, or more information about the Accidental Gods membership portal, which is a structured program designed to give anybody the ways that we need to connect to the more-than-human world in the ways that Adam was describing, and to go deeper so that we can begin to ask the questions that we need to ask of the greater web of consciousness in ways that allow us to hear answers that are authentic and grounded and useful. So if you know of anybody else who would like to be active in co-creating the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.